The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is R. Christopher Whalen, who is the co-founder and managing director of Institutional Risk Analytics, uh, which is a Torrance, California company that uh, does bank rating and consulting. He is also the author of a new book called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thank you, Jordan. Great to be with you. Let, uh, I mentioned your title a little bit, but why don't you give a little bit more background on uh, how you came to uh, uh, your background on this and how you came to writing this book particularly. Well, as uh, you said, our company, uh, Institutional Risk Analytics, uh, rates all U.S. banks. We are heavily involved in the, uh, the understanding, if you will, of the banking crisis. Uh, we also spend a good bit of time uh, providing services to a variety of different companies in and around that industry. So we're pretty much focused on financials. Uh, my background is as an investment banker and journalist. I, I actually grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, worked for the Congress and the Heritage Foundation early in my career. So I, I have an understanding of the ways of Washington, and I use that to season my financial opinions. And what was the reason that you wanted to do this book called Inflated? Well, um, I collect books from the Gilded Age, from the 1800s, uh, and I had always wanted to do something with them. And my good friend David Kotak from Cumberland Advisors uh, looked at me on a fishing trip a couple years ago and said, Chris, write the book. So he then introduced me to John Wiley, who had just published a book for him on Europe. And sure enough, I had a contract in my hands uh, two weeks later, so I had to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to do it. All right, so uh, It is. It's nice to have friends like David. And what I try to do with this book, in a very simple sense, is give Americans a somewhat opinionated narrative of our financial history. And I give you lots of footnotes if you want to dig into the, the detail. But I wanted to use people and try and use some of the personalities of each era to make it a more readable and a more easily understood story. So I think we're going to go through this a little bit and then try to relate it to uh, the economic and financial situation we're in today. But yeah. by understanding the history a little bit, it'll probably help people kind of understand what kind of financial situation we're in now. And then your prescriptions for what needs to be done about it to make things go better instead of worse. Before we get to the United States, why don't you talk a little bit about previous history, uh, things that might have happened during the Roman Empire or the British Empire, things that kind of led to the banking system that ultimately the United States uh, took on and how that kind of set up the situation. Well, in the beginning of the book, I have a quote from Hayek where he states that uh, no democratic society can resist the demand for money, if you will, or the, the demand uh, on the part of uh, a, a country's citizenry for growth and prosperity, uh, liquidity, which is something we deal with in my book in the early part of the United States. And I think that's true. What I always tell my gold bug friends is that money is a function of people, and people are not perfect, are they? So you always have to remember that as an investor, because you want to try and balance your 
objectives, on the one hand having liquidity and being able to go out and do the things that you need to do today in the marketplace, and at the same time have a safe haven, have land, have commodities, have something that is not within reach of the politicians, because you know they're going to debase your currency, and you know they're going to issue more debt, because they don't have to ask you to issue debt, unfortunately. That's, just, that's where we are today. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in the U.S., the democratic system always takes the path of least resistance. So every society has done this, as you mentioned, the Romans and Europeans, obviously. Uh, even the colonial governments before the start of the United States had the same problem. They issued their own money with nothing behind it or, or with a promise behind it. So that's, that's what I always tell people is you, you have to be cognizant that the system is always oriented towards inflation. Any democratic system will always be that way. So even non-democratic systems like the Roman Empire. Oh, yeah, well, they're probably worse. Exactly. That's a very good point. Yeah, the, the authoritarian systems are even worse. But I think what we've seen in the United States is that a democracy can be bad, too. <laughs> so is there any place in the world that ever does it right that does not have the impulse no, to inflate? No. No, because people are involved. Well, see, I've been very fortunate in my life. Uh, I've been able to work with a lot of technologists, including my partner, Dennis Santiago, who's a brilliant scientist, used to build B-1 bombers. And they teach you that even in the world of computers and technology, there is enormous imperfection, and in particular, the presence of people. Uh, you know, people are always the ones, because they're free, uh, who inject uncertainty and, and surprises into any system. And that's good. You know, crises are part of being in a free society, of, uh, you know, financial crises. So, so let's talk a little bit, again, before the United States, the history of inflation. I mean, let's just take the Roman Empire, for example. They, mm. they, they ruled the world. They had this very strong currency, but then they started debasing the currency to pay for these wars and ultimately got sacked by the Vandals. What was the kind of economic and financial path that led them to ultimate destruction? Well, keeping the crowd happy. If you've ever seen the wonderful film Gladiator, they're throwing bread into the crowd. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, those are a very wonderful allegory for today's subsidies, right? Keep the beast at bay if you're an elected official or even a Roman emperor whose, whose rule is still subject to the whim and, and mood of the, the population. So it's the same thing. The story repeats itself. That's really what the book research taught me, was that the same pattern repeats itself over and over again whether you're in Asia, Europe, what have you, people are always the same in this regard. You have periods of growth, periods when there's not enough money, and now, of course, we're having the opposite effect, which is that the big demographic bulge, the baby boom in the U.S. has gone by, and they're now at the point where they'd like to sell their houses instead of buying houses. Uh, they are, in fact, going to become a secular group of net sellers of assets, investments, everything else. How we handle that is going to be very different from how we handled the inflation in the 70s and the 80s. So you're saying there's never been a ruler in world history who was kind of a sound money person who did not give in to the wishes of the people and inflate? One does not come to mind. You know, you, you, you ask a very good question, because the Austrian school obviously holds up this hope yes. that one day there will be a system with sound money. And I have yet to find one. I think most of the times when you've had stability in terms of money, it's been an accident of history. It's, it's been you know, driven by the relative uh, position of a state, like the United States, for example, after World War II. We had everyone's money. Everyone in the world owed us money from the war. We had the only industrial base in the world. So it was easy for us to have dollar stability for 50 years, wasn't it? 
there was no competition. Indeed, even today, with all of the problems we have, all the debt we've accumulated, the dollar and the euro are still the only two currencies in the world that are big enough to accommodate world trade. You know, think about trade in, in something like oil. It's very expensive and it's very big. How do you pay for it? Well, you have to have a currency that's big enough to accommodate that, those transactions. Well, while we're on that topic, instead of going back to history, we'll go to the current events for the moment. Yeah. I mean, there are people who are today saying that the dollar is threatened as the world reserve currency because we're devaluing it so much. And the big holders of dollars, the Chinese, the Saudis, the Japanese, and so on, do not want to keep seeing their money devalued. And that's why they're buying gold. And there have been talks about having some kind of a basket of currency that might include the euro and the yen and the renminbi and gold mm -hmm. and all kinds of mm -hmm. things. You would have a basket. It wouldn't be just one currency, but you'd have a basket of currencies that we, you would price oil and commodities and other things in because people are losing faith in the dollar. Is that outlandish or is that possible? No, no, I think that is ultimately where we end up. Um, if you go back to what we were just saying, you have a world situation after the end of World War II where we essentially equate the dollar and gold. They're equal within the Bretton Woods framework. Yes. And the world goes off, and we rebuild the world, both with debt and with credit, and there was a lot of real growth. Um, but now that we've gotten everybody rebuilt, and they're very competitive, especially the Asian economies, um, we're up against the same problem we had in the 20s in the period after the creation of the Fed in 1913, which is overcapacity. There's not enough demand for all the people who want to work. I've got a great quote from Paul Volcker in the latter part of the book that talks about this. So I think it's clear that the other nations of the world are not going to let us keep the monopoly of the means of exchange, which is what you're really talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and I think inevitably we're going to go to a competitive system where if you have a trade deficit, your currency is going to get devalued within the basket. And that's how we're going to discipline people, because it's going to become more and more expensive for you to buy imports. It sounds like the third world debt crisis, doesn't it? Yeah. But, but I think a clearinghouse kind of structure where all the major nations of the world can clear their trade transactions uh, and reflect the relative value of each currency, I think obviously that's where we're heading. And we just I, haven't had an adult discussion about it yet. <laughs> is there an institutional system to implement something like them? Could the IMF do it or the World Bank? How could that actually happen? Well, they discussed that at, at Bretton Woods and before, um, some sort of global, as I say, clearinghouse kind of model. That's what it would look like, the way banks clear debits and credits among themselves. Um, but the question is the political will to go there. It's much like the uh, nations of Southern Europe face today. They have higher inflation. They have higher debt than, say, Germany and the northern countries. So over time, they're becoming less and less competitive, and they have fiscal issues. They're dying because they're part of a currency basket, because they just don't have the discipline to compete with those other countries. Uh, so it's hard to get the less competitive countries in the world to agree to this, because once you take the inflation uh, relief valve, if you will, away from the politicians in a country like that, you're almost always going to see a crisis. That's what you see in Greece today. They don't have nearly enough growth for all the debt they have. Same with Ireland. The banks got much too big compared to the underlying economy in Ireland. And so now you're seeing the collapse of these structures, and it, it really begs the question. And, and the reason, you know, we all forget all these historical facts, but the reason we were afraid of war was because, uh, or, or, or afraid of, of uh, deflation and this competitive issue, was because it led to war. And so, you know, we've gone full circle. The, the Bretton Woods Agreement was about preventing the next war. And therefore, we had this currency system built around the dollar. 
But I think now we have to evolve to something that's more multilateral, really, to your question. Is the United States similar to Greece and Ireland and Iceland, no. I mean, just on a bigger scale? No, no. Look, the U.S. is an extremely complicated country. It's a young country compared to many. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a juvenile compared to the nations of Europe or even uh, Asia, China. China's the oldest nation in the world. They, they've been around long enough to collapse completely and come back as an emerging country. So, you know, I think the U.S. has some demographic and other challenges, but we remain a very vibrant society. It's just that people forget that being a free society means that you have the freedom to make mistakes. And we've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you know, in, in, uh, I always tell my friends, in, you know, you can go to Scandinavia if you want to live in a perfect country, and they don't allow people to make mistakes. <laughs> These are very regimented societies. My friends in Norway, for example, and, you know, they've outlawed drunk driving. If you get caught drunk driving, they take your car, they throw you in jail, and they fine you a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> it's catastrophic, so you don't do it. So if you want to live in a society like that, okay. Uh, we in the United States have not gone that route, I hope, and, and that's why you have these periodic democratic outbursts and acts of irresponsibility. Uh, we've been having a party in this country since World War II, in, in a historical sense. That's just my own view, but I think that uh, colors your understanding of the policies that were put in place, especially the latter part of this century when we made housing the driver of the American economy, which makes no sense at all, but it was a lot of fun, wasn't it? <laughs> it was good while it lasted, indeed. All right, we're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is R. Christopher Whalen. Uh, his new book is called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 one six three four. 
That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay, because spaces are limited. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is R. Christopher Whalen. Uh, His new book is called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. Just want to talk about the implications of what you've been saying here. Say somehow politically this were done, that we uh, the, the dollar was no longer the world currency, and instead we had this kind of basket of currencies and commodities based on what all the different countries bring to the party somehow. Uh, what would be the impact on that of not being, in effect, protected by the dollar as U.S. Uh, reserve currency? What would be the impact on Americans uh, from something like that? Well, America would have to pay attention to its balance of trade. In other words, the difference between what we sell and what we buy, both in terms of commercial uh, uh, transactions and financial transactions. This would really change things because today the Fed can buy debt issued by the Treasury and not force the U.S. Treasury to go out in the market and sell all of its bonds to investors. If you look recently, the Fed just renewed the swap lines to the various European central banks, which are essentially loans that our central bank has made to them directly. Um, And they didn't want these banks to wade into the market to have to replace this funding. That's how tight the dollar market still is today, believe it or not, with Mm -hmm. all the greenbacks that Ben Bernanke has created. So, So, you know, the Fed is a de facto world central bank today. And it's been useful at times, to, especially to some of our allies. So imagine what Europe would look like today if the U.S. hadn't lent them that money. Yeah. They would have had a bond run. So if you go to a completely competitive system, there is no omnibus liquidity provider to the market. Each central bank would then have to have enough reserves in their vault to basically balance accounts with other nations, much like we had before World War I, where we used gold to settle up accounts between nations. I think today you would probably want to expand that to traded commodities, oil, things So you're saying like you couldn't have big surpluses and deficits? Well, you would, of course. Look at the U.S. We're still running a considerable trade deficit. And by definition, the value of the dollar would go down. In yeah. that, imagine you had the basket framework. If you were running chronic deficits, and say you were financing them uh, by borrowing, your currency would fall. That would make your debt more expensive. And it would also put a lot of pressure on your your government to get their fiscal house in line. Look at the U.K. U.K. is a great example of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They can't go out and print money and buy their own debt the way we can. So they've had to put that country into the worst austerity they've had since World War II. Because the pound is not the uh, world currency. It it had been, though. Sterling had been the world currency, right? Exactly. But more than that, if the Bank of England were in there visibly buying the government's debt issuance, the pound would collapse. People would flee the currency. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. The, the dollar's special role as the global means of exchange has allowed us to escape that pressure. Yes. It essentially gives us an option that other countries don't have. And other countries are very resentful of this, especially in Europe. They understand this. So what could they, the, the countries that own our debt, the Chinese own two trillion. The Japanese, the right. Saudis, all—they're they're getting 
nervous now. They're getting un- well, unhappy. Been nervous for a long time, but what are they going to do? Yes, what are they going to do? Let me go back to your earlier question. What would affect the dollar's central role, if you will? Um, obviously, if you have investors no longer show up for treasury auctions, that's going to put pressure on interest rates in the dollar over time. If the Chinese just folded their arms and said, no, we're not going to buy. We'll keep what we've got, but we're not going to buy anymore. But the trouble is they have to put that money somewhere. They could keep it under their mattress, but in, in, when you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, you're talking about electronic entries for bank accounts at, at this stage. They are going to deposit that money somewhere. They're going to have to put it in the bank. So by definition, those dollars do work their way back to the U.S. and t- into the dollar system again. It's not like they can hold them back and say, no, we're not going to give you your dollars. You also have to remember that they want us to buy things from them. Their economy is largely export-dependent. So the Chinese can't afford to tell us to go away at this stage. They're also not quite sure that they want their currency to start to become, for example, the regional currency in Asia. They're not really sure they want to do that. Because, you know, as my friend David Kotak said to me a long time ago, he says, Chris, being the reserve currency is a job that finds you. It's not a job you volunteer for. <laughs> but if, if Chinese currency was becoming more important regionally, it no, would it r- rise it in value, making them less competitive, is what you're saying, right? Well, it, it will do a number of things, because obviously, let's say all the nations in Asia agreed to clear all their trade through the Chinese currency instead of using dollars. The Chinese currency would have to get much bigger. They'd have to have a lot more of it out there. They would have to let banks trade it freely. Because in order to clear the volume of commerce we're talking about that's been flowing through the dollar market, for example, uh, the Chinese currency would have to become freely floated. They'd have to let people have access to it. The Chinese government is very authoritarian. They're afraid of this. Because if you indeed expanded the use of the Chinese currency, you'd have to liberalize the financial markets. And this would create more opening and possibly create pressure for political change. So it's a double-edged sword for the Chinese. They're not a free society. They're still very much afraid of their own people, three-quarters of whom live in poverty. That's the thing you always have to remember about China. Now, recently, they've uh, been having a pretty good bout of inflation, and they've been trying to tamp it down by raising interest rates there. You're the expert on inflation. Is is (laughs) China doing the right thing, or is China following, even though they're an autocratic and not a democratic regime, are they following the same path of democratic regimes? Well, you see, in China you have still a largely command economy. You do have a private, quote-unquote, economy that, if you will, is the periphery of, of the Chinese sector, but most of the big components of the Chinese uh, economy are still controlled by the state, especially by the Communist Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. They have layers of control, both governmental and political. And what this means is that it doesn't respond to anything like a market economy. And when it does get out of balance, in other words, after the crisis began in the U.S., the Chinese tried to make up for the export markets that disappeared. We literally stopped buying products from many Asian countries for the first year of the crisis because consumer demand fell off pretty dramatically. And so they are in this kind of catch-22 where they would like to be independent of the dollar for the reasons you just stated. They don't want to worry about the dollar going down and all our debt, but they don't have a lot of easy alternatives. And that's kind of where I see both them and other nations in the world. The Europeans have the same problem. In fact, my friend Jim Rickards said that he thinks the Europeans and the Russians will eventually reach some kind of a, a, a large currency accord because they have commonality of interests. The Russians have natural resources. The Europeans have ready markets. 
and ultimately I don't think they want to kill each other anymore. So, you know, there may eventually be a block in Europe that's built around a, a Russian-European uh, economic framework that could be a competitor to the dollar as well and could be backed by Russian gold and Russian natural resources. At the moment, though, people are talking the opposite, that the euro oh, may not survive, that the euro, oh, there's going to be a northern and a southern Europe, uh, euro, and that well, uh, they've put together these two very disparate economies, and they're just, the, the right. northern ones don't want to keep subsidizing the southern ones, basically. That's right. I think it's likely that the, the southern European nations, the peripheral nations, if you will, could fall out. The Italians could stay in because most of their debt's held domestically. They don't have the same pressures on them that the Spanish do, for example. But think of Spain as the Florida of Europe. Okay, people want to live there. It's very nice and warm. A lot of speculation in real estate, much much like the southeastern U.S. By the way, mm-hmm. so we, you know, and now they have to work their way through it. And most of the bonds are held by investors outside of Spain, so it automatically becomes a French and a German problem. The other thing, to your point, is you always have to remember that the European Union was an American idea. Uh, they saw it as a way of binding the Europeans together. This was in the context of the Marshall Plan immediately after the war, and forcing them to get aid from the United States collectively so they wouldn't start killing each other again. The Mm -hmm. whole point was to avoid war. Mm -hmm. And so here we are today. We have this thing called the European Union, and they have kind of gone forward in some aspects of unification, but they still don't have a unified economy, do they? What would that mean? What would that mean if Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, and so when we're thrown out of the euro, and what would that mean for the economy? Well, it would be smaller, but if you're talking about France, Germany, the Benelux countries, parts of Scandinavia, um, some of the Eastern Bloc countries, I think it would work because they have similar living standards and they have similar political tolerance as far as subsidies and unemployment and everything. The, the southern European states are not in line with them, and that's why it's not working. So what would happen to the states that got thrown out of the euro? They would have to float their own currencies again. They would, you know, end up like they were, which was not very good. Look at Greece before they were admitted. I mean, who would accept uh, drachmas? If <laughs> well, no one would. That's what I'm saying. If you imagine a competitive currency basket world where everybody is assessed based on how competitive they are and how well they manage their economy, how well they manage their fiscal side and their governments, that's a very different world than the world we live in today, isn't it? Indeed. If you don't have the IMF and the World Bank there to bail out the debtors, you know, you would have to have a very strict regime because everyone would have an interest in having fairness and transparency in that regime, right? I, I think it would be a good thing. But I'm not sure Americans are quite ready for that yet. Has, has that ever existed in the world, something that we're talking about where people are held to account? in some Well, kind of- it exists in the United States because of the Commerce Clause. We have free trade within the 50 states, and they're not allowed to discriminate against one another. We have a fungible currency, so the money moves where it needs to go. And you've had great periods that I talk about in my book in the U.S. where certain regions of the country didn't feel like they had enough money, just physical currency for day-to-day transactions. Mm-hmm. So you, you have seen free trade systems, as I say. I think the U.S. is one of the leading examples of that, and, and in Europe as well. But I, it's not the rule. And again, because Europe was you know, a collection of tiny little ethnically distinct countries. My, my grandparents, for example, are from the eastern Ukraine, and they're actually ethnic Turks. They were dragged there by the Mongols in the 11th century. Um, these people have never gotten along, and they do not have integrated countries and, and economies even today. There is no commerce clause in Europe. Mm-hmm. So while they do have freedom of movement, and in theory, 
you have free commerce in Europe, but the reality is still very, very uh, balkanized and regionalized. So that's that's where I think the problem is, and they don't have a common government, really. They don't have a unified fiscal regime. We have 25 countries. If you had a regime... going to fall out. If you had a regime like you're talking about, where people were kind of held to account, it seems to me the haves would get a lot more, and the have-nots would be falling much further behind. Um, I think that that could be the result. Um, it depends. Look at Brazil. I think a country like Brazil would do very well. Mm-hmm. They were heavily indebted years ago. Everybody was going to write them off. They've come full circle. Yeah. In fact, I mentioned that in the book. Isn't it ironic that we're sitting here, you know, looking at the U.S. as a debtor, looking at the U.S. as a country that needs to be restructured? When we were talking about these emerging countries years ago, they've all paid off their debt. Indeed. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back uh, talk about the investment implications of what we talked about a little bit here. Uh, my guest this hour is Chris Whalen. His new book is called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. We'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay, because spaces are limited. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. 
Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is R. Christopher Whalen, whose new book is called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Oh, thank you, Jordan. Tell people about your uh, website and how they can find out more about the book. Oh, well, uh, on my website, rcwhalen.com, uh, we've got a number of reviews and the targets for the various online uh, services if they'd like to buy a copy. I also put all the media hits up on Twitter as well as my random musings about the market. I cover uh, banks as an analyst, so uh, we've been having a lot of fun lately, foreclosures and all this other uh, news that's been hitting the market. That, uh, Let's doesn't talk about make the a lot deci- of sense to people. Let's talk about the decision that just happened uh, last week uh, where the Massachusetts court basically struck down a lot of the foreclosures being done by Wells yeah. Fargo and U.S. Bank, saying that they didn't have the right paperwork. What is the implication of that? Well, it's twofold. Um, in terms of homeowners, it basically means that before the bank uh, moves on a foreclosure in Massachusetts, they're going to have to make sure that the lien uh, documentation down to courthouse is completely up to date. In that case, um, the mortgage was originated by a bank in Massachusetts. It was sold to another company. It was then sold to Lehman Brothers, and it went through several more ownership iterations before it was eventually sold to a Delaware trust, and they issued bonds with the mortgage as collateral. Um, the problem is, is that it's been pretty commonplace on Wall Street not to go down to the courthouse and file the change in the lien. So even though they have, they may have a viable note. In other words, they sold the mortgage note to an investor. That investor may not be able to foreclose on the house. So it's going to be quite a mess. The banks are going to have to pay a lot of fees and a lot of lawyers' fees and everything else to straighten this out if they can. But the big thing I see is that investors who bought these securities, where the note wasn't actually delivered to the trustee properly, uh, are going to sue everybody on the planet, and they are. Uh, there's already a lot of litigation going on involving the investors, the mortgage insurance companies, that in some cases put wrappers around these bonds to make them more attractive. So it's it's going to be a lawyer's feast. But as I always remind people, lawyers did well in the early part of the Depression, and by 35, 36, they were all starving, too. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your the implications for investing in bank stocks these days, based on what you see? Well, um, according to our ratings, the industry has been getting better since the end of 2009, which is to say the better managed banks are showing uh, distinct improvement. Um, the big guys are still under a lot of stress, and they show it. They're seeing a lot of expenses come from this foreclosure mess, the loan servicing business, for example, which is no longer a profitable business. It's, it's deeply in loss. Because think about it. If you buy a bond or mortgage-backed security, it's uh, owned by a trust. The trustee has to start spending money to take care of defaults. They have to hire a collection firm to go out and foreclose on the house and hire lawyers and everything else. These were not expenses that the investors anticipated. So that's a bit of a nightmare. The good news, I think, is that in the restructuring side, as we go through some of these bank failures and some of the asset sales that have been going on, which my firm acts uh, as a consultant on, um, I do see a lot of value being created there, and I, I am hopeful that we're going to be able to turn a good bit of this mess around as we go through this year and next year, just simply by restructuring. Uh, that, that's the great strength of the United States, is that the courts are open every day. We're not like the Japanese, and we get on with it. So that's what we have to do. So do you like big uh, money center banks or regional no. banks? No, no. I, um, you know, I have people like BBT, U.S. Bank, uh, PNC is another one I've got a positive outlook on. But the top four have legacy issues. Of the top four, really, City is the best. 
because they've had to restructure the most, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. Um, people like uh, Bank America are probably in the most trouble, followed by Wells, again, because of mortgage exposure. Uh, J.P. Morgan has a variety of issues. They've got well over $130 billion worth of second lien home equity loans. What do you think those are worth if the underlying mortgage is underwater? Mm-hmm. Home That's equity a- wor- alone is worth zero. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about mortgages, uh, what is going to be the resolution for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Well, Fannie, as I, as I talk about in the book a little bit, is a Depression-era agency that was created so that there would be a secondary market in home loans. So the bank could sell a loan and go out and do it again, right? If you remember, the, yep. it's, a, it's a wonderful life metaphor. So, you know, what I think is going to have to happen, because these agencies went crazy, Peter Wallison has a great comment in the Wall Street Journal today, by the way, people ought to read, uh, basically saying that we've got to wind these things down. And I think what we should do is take Fannie, Freddie, and the federal home loan banks, merge them all together, and run them off, run their portfolio off so they don't, they don't have any investments anymore. And then it, we've got to decide how much of the housing market we really need to have government intervention in. If you want to help low-income people trying to get a start in life, I have no problem with that. That's what we do with Ginny Mae now. Um, I think the rest of it, you need to get rid of it and have rules, federal rules, for originating and servicing loans. Um, but I don't think we need the government involved in this, frankly. It's been a horrible political problem, and it is to this day. I mean, Barney Frank and the Democrats in the Congress would like to expand these programs more, even though they've created a black hole for the U.S. taxpayer in terms of the losses so far. Think of it this way. The banks are essentially loan production offices for Fannie and Freddie. All the risk ends up in Washington. Uh, Tim Geithner just announced a settlement for Bank America's exposure with Fannie and Freddie, uh, and I figure it's a $10, $15 billion gift from the Treasury uh, that Tim Geithner didn't get any authorization from the Congress for. So, you know, that's, whenever you have the government and the banks too close together, you have problems. And people should always remember that Fannie Mae comes from fascist Italy. That's where FDR got the good idea of creating <laughs> a government-sponsored entity. Uh, so, you know, if we go back to our own first principles as Americans, I think we'll find the answer. The answer is we've got to privatize this thing and sell it and get the government as much as possible out of the housing business. Because as I discuss in my book, the Congress deliberately used housing as a way of ingratiating themselves with the voters. And they had a lot of company. They had the mortgage bankers, the commercial bankers, the realtors, the home builders. We had this corporatist festival. Uh, spending subsidies, using Fannie and Freddie to encourage homeownership. Well, we encouraged an increase in homeownership in this country of almost 8%. We went from the low 60s versus the total population as far as homeownership up into the 70s. And now those same people are being forced out of the marketplace, often with defaults, ruining their credit history. So this is a very costly little experiment we had. And I think it should teach all Americans that we want to keep the government as far away from housing as we possibly can. I mean, in fact, the opposite is happening in the real world today, that you should be getting out, but the government's becoming more involved in housing, putting well, the yes, rules... Well, and, yes, and look what we have. The top three, especially Fannie, Freddie, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank America, top five, are a cartel. They control most of the business that's sold to Fannie and Freddie, the, the big banks. So if you're trying to get a refi now, you're facing higher fees. You're facing a bank that's probably going to make at least three, three and a half points on the origination instead of a tenth of that during the boom, by the way. And so they're discouraging refinancing. 
And the, the irony of ironies, if you really look at the loan-level pricing formula that's on the Fannie Mae website, they're not helping low-income people. They're screwing them. Low-income family would be better off borrowing money from a hedge fund than from <laughs> Fannie Mae. That's the real crime. These, these agencies are supposed to help people. The only people they help are the big banks. So, you know, we could talk about this all afternoon. On a broader note, um, if, if we're going to have inflation, you're saying that we are inflating our way. We're just printing money and borrowing like crazy around the world. Is, is this a prescription for buying gold? Is that the last remedy for all this, the, the, the barbaric well, relic, they call it? Gold has been performing very well. Um, I have a good friend who runs a gold fund, and, you know, they've had excellent performance the last few years, although it hasn't quite been keeping up with visible inflation. So you're still a little bit behind on your gold investment as an inflation hedge. But I would tell you that all commodities, copper, gold, the, the precious metals that are really used in industry, uh, are all good hedges for the long term because they, they are distinct from paper money. You know, the Fed is a reserve bank with no reserves. There's nothing inside. The dollar is just basically a unit of, of work, if you think of it, you know, how we pay people every day for their labor. So if you're talking about preserving wealth, you've got to think in terms of, like uh, I was saying before, very well-selected real estate, other physical assets, all sorts of metals, things that are all used in industry. Don't just limit yourself to gold. Platinum, for example, has performed well. No, silver, not so much. I spent a lot of time on the book, uh, in the book on silver because it was both a religious phenomenon and a monetary phenomenon. You know, William Jennings Bryant and all that, and it's instructive, too. Because we had a flat economy at the end of the 1800s. People were looking for growth. And they thought, well, we'll just issue a lot of money. They wanted to coin silver. And the, the agrarians particularly thought this was the problem, that we needed more money. So we're kind of repeating that same experience again. <laughs> Indeed we are, yes. For different reasons. <laughs> so uh, how would you invest in uh, these metals that you think are going to do well? Would you do ETFs or the companies that mine them? What are the best ways of well, playing? Well, yeah, I think the companies with exposure to them are the best way for retail investors to get involved. You know, I don't follow the stock market, so I can't give you specific recommendations uh, in this regard. But what I would tell you is that you want to just do your homework and see if you can find companies that have both exposure to the global marketplace in terms of just in general, and then those companies that do uh, focus on precious metals, rare earth metals, um, things that are not so much going into scarcity, but are definitely being driven higher by demand. China, all these other emerging nations are spending a lot of money on infrastructure and on production, and this is pushing the cost of all of these inputs for industry higher. You have people reopening mines all over the United States, for example, to go after certain types of rare earth metals. And the prices are such now that it makes sense, whereas five, ten years ago the prices were so low that they, these, these operations weren't viable. So that shows you how much the prices have moved. How, when are the prices that you're seeing on commodities going to be felt by consumers? I mean, you talk about inflation here, but mm -hmm. the, the official CPI is still 1% or less, something like yeah. that, excluding food and energy. Uh, so Bernanke has said inflation is not a problem. He's more worried about deflation. What is happening here? Well, you can have both. That's the joke, right? And I, I think the way I would put it is this. I do the grocery shopping in my family. There's no deflation at the grocery store. Um, but obviously financial assets, housing, I, I think is going to go down again this year. Uh, I participate in the forward survey that Bob Schiller runs for the Case-Shiller Index. And I was originally down 10 for this year. 
I ended up down four, which is going to be pretty close to what we did. But I'm looking for housing to be lower again next year, or at this year and next year. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is uh, Christopher Whalen. His new book is called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. We'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011 on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay, because spaces are limited. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan, or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Christopher Whalen. Uh, his new book is called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. There was a recent uh, interview with Ben Bernanke on 60 Minutes where he said uh, flat out that he wants more inflation, uh, that uh, if inflation starts getting out of control, he is 100% sure he can stop it. Uh, he's more worried about deflation than inflation. Uh, what was your reaction to that? Well, I think Chairman Bernanke is reflecting the reality that he sees, and the Fed is still worried about deflation because they see that the housing market particularly and the portion of the securities market that's tied to housing uh, is still deflating in terms of the underlying value of the collateral, the, the price of homes. 
um, half of the bank balance sheet in the U.S. is related to residential housing. If you include the loans that these banks originated and sold to investors, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, it's more like three-quarters of their total balance sheet. So when you get a third of all U.S. homes underwater in price, and you probably have 20 25% of those homes down significantly double digits from where they were, uh, this suggests that we're going to have continued problems in terms of deflation. I think that's what Chairman Bernanke is uh, reacting to. But it hasn't worked so far. When they started QE2 back in November, the idea was to push mortgage rates down, and they've gone up a full percentage point or so since. So is it not that's working? That's right. That's right. Well, here was the problem. They did push interest rates down. So you're subsidizing the banks, obviously. Anybody who's levered, corporations, they all refinance most of their debt. They, they were very aggressive. But this hasn't trickled down to the household level. So unlike most recessions in the post-war period, where the Fed would drop rates and you would immediately reliquify the consumer, if you will, in this phase, the banks have been in such trouble and they had such a dramatic drop in the value of, of homes, the collateral behind loans, that they've internalized all of that subsidy. They're not letting any of it trickle down. And frankly, rates are so low now, it may be unreasonable to expect that the industry is going to voluntarily go in and start refinancing 30-year mortgages at 4%, right? That that's, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I will tell you that there are probably 20 to 30 million American households out there right now that cannot refinance, even though they would like to. And if we don't refinance those homes that are underwater and try and keep these people in these houses, they're going to turn into defaults. And we're going to see uh, credit expenses going back up in the industry. So I think uh, if the Obama administration doesn't get with it soon and come out with some kind of a national proposal to restructure the top three banks, deal with this issue head on, and try and get some kind of liquidity back into U.S. households, then we're going to have a very tough time for the next few years, in my opinion. The Obama administration does have the so-called HAMP and HARP programs. Oh, a disaster. A HAMP was a program that was designed to, you know, modify mortgages, and it was a dismal failure. These mortgages typically redefault, even when you modify a mortgage. Yeah. It's almost always going to go back into default. So that's not a solution. What, what would be a solution? If, if you were running HUD or, or the Federal Reserve, what would be your solution for the current situation? Well, I think uh, we published uh, something we call the Brady Plan for the mortgage industry, and it would essentially force the banks to take performing mortgages. I'm not talking about a mortgage that's already in default, but I'm talking about banks would go to all the mortgage holders on their book right now who are current and say, look, we will refinance you with no fees, very, very low fees, uh, down to a very low fixed rate. So you want to get the optionality out of the market, essentially get those option arms turned back into fixed rate. And then the next question is, if you've got a house that's 25 or 30% below uh, where the house was originally valued when the mortgage was made, you've got to, as a lender, make a decision. Do you want that, that uh, homeowner to default? Because it's unlikely that that house is going to recover value over the life of the mortgage, right? It may. It may recover some of it. I think as a lender, you may be better off writing down the principal of that, lo of that loan and lightening the load on the homeowner just to keep them in the house because you'll have a better recovery on the loan, even if you write part of it down. If it turns into a default, you're going to get a zero in the current market. It's going to be 100% loss. Which is what's been happening. and We've been right. having these huge foreclosures. Right. Yes. So, you know, the, the problem is Larry Summers sold the president this uh, strategy, if you want to dignify it, 
that said, well, time will heal, heal all wounds. And that's not the case. It's a much deeper uh, correction than we've seen in this country since World War II. And so people keep thinking, well, we wait long enough, it'll be okay. And that's not the case. I think, as I said, you're going to see credit costs for banks going back up. So are there investments? You're going to see that homeowner who's never been late default suddenly. Are there investment implications for this? Are there ways that you would short the housing market or something? Or how would you play this as an investor? Short the bank that owns your mortgage. (laughs) <laughs> That's not a very promising strategy, though. It implies that your community is in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. But I, I, look, I think the government has to accept, and we as taxpayers have to accept, that the government caused this. You know, I talk a fair amount about this in my book. Having all these government-sponsored housing programs, it led us to this day. It, it has created a huge solvency problem in our banking system. No surprise, right? When most of their assets are concentrated on what's essentially uh, an expense. Housing is a necessary expense, but it's not like industry. It doesn't create a lot of jobs, naturally. And it is variable. It's extremely variable. One of the reactions to all the spending and deficit has been the Tea Party. And the Republicans have won a majority in the House and more control in the Senate. And they're against all the spending. Do you think that their influence uh, will be significant in turning things around? Oh, it already is. You know, you're having uh, discussions about the U.S. possibly, uh, you know, defaulting and not extending the ceiling on the debt. But I think, you know, the American people are very much a reflection of what you see in the Tea Party movement. I think Washington was sound asleep last couple of years, especially the Democrats. They did not understand how much pain there is out there in the country. And so, surprise, surprise, we had a nasty election and the Republicans are back in control of one of the houses of Congress. But I don't see the Republicans as change agents either. They don't know what to do. Um, they're all trying patchworks to try and deal with symptoms rather than a systemic uh, change. And frankly, it looks like they're going to embrace kind of Coolidge-era austerity, uh, much like we see in Europe. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about that because if you have too much cutbacks too quickly, you'll accelerate deflation in this country. And that may be inevitable. There may be nothing government can do, really, about this situation. Because until we just work our way through all these foreclosures and clear these markets, which will probably take another three, four years, um, we won't know what the prices are for homes in a lot of communities. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, This year, we are probably going to see most sales in this country, what we call involuntary. There will be foreclosure sales. So every time there's a foreclosure sale in your neighborhood, that's a case where the bank just tells the broker, sell the house. Just sell the house. At whatever price. At whatever price. Usually yeah. a cash buyer. There's no leverage here. So that immediately is going to pull down the comps in the neighborhood. Every time you have one of those sales, that inevitably is going to erode valuations. So I think this is going to be a very tough year, and I am, I'm, I'm very worried that the Obama administration does not understand that there's a train coming at them. <laughs> but what you were saying at the beginning of the interview, though, is that that's what should happen, is you should have a kind of clearing of the market. You shouldn't be propping things up because it's going to collapse anyway. Well, so no, I totally agree. It. But the, 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 you see, when you have banks that are insolvent, they are delaying the process of clearing. Um, you know, we don't hear about Lehman Brothers and WAMU anymore because they've already been dealt with. And that's how we should have dealt with uh, the rest of these big banks. We'd be past it. We, we'd be recovering already. Very good. All right, well, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, people can find out more in your book. It's called Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream uh, by Christopher Whalen. Uh, again, t- tell them your website, Chris. It's uh, rcwhalen.com, 
And there's more information on the book and links to uh, my Twitter page and the uh, IRA website as well. Terrific. Thanks so much. Uh, my guest Thank has you, been George. Christopher Whalen, and we'll be back again with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.